Well, welcome. <laughs> Good to be together with you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, I know I met some of you who were new as I was, uh, as you were walking in, so want to welcome you. Glad you're with us uh, this morning. Uh, we're diving into the book of Romans, and we're continuing on our journey. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 1 and put your finger where verse 18 is, because that's where we're going to be diving in this week. We are made to worship. We've entitled this section Counterfeit Worship because that's what Paul is going to put before us. But we were made to work, worship. If you go all the way back to Genesis, to the beginning, you see God creating people to be worshipers, to create people to be image bearers. And what an image does is it reflects back. And in that time, what were they reflecting back? And it's, I, it's the same as what we reflect back. They were reflecting the goodness and the beauty of God. And that is an act of worship. To act like God. To reflect him back. And then we also have this sense of God creating man and woman to worship in the fact that the Garden of Eden is often uh, referred to by theologians as the first tabernacle. It was the place where God dwelled, right? The tabernacle was where God dwelt. And what did you do in the tabernacle? You worshiped. You showed up and you told God of his beauty. You told God of his greatness. The tabernacle was a place to worship, and we know that that's why it's so significant when that Jesus comes in John chapter 1, that John uses the language when he says that Jesus dwelt among us. The word he uses is he tabernacled among us. He ta God's presence is here. And the object of our worship, God himself, is here he is present. But things have gone a little sideways. Things have gone a little wrong. And so this is what Paul is presenting to us in Romans chapter 1. He says this, verse 18. The wrath of God, if you did your homework, you looked at the wrath of God, right? Not a happy topic, but a necessary topic. Necessary for us to understand um, God's grace, to understand the fullness of what God has done for us. If we don't understand the wrath of God, then we don't understand the cross of Christ. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress, underline that word, that's key, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, God is eternal, God is powerful, God is divine, he is God. That's been revealed to us, Paul is saying. Having, have, have been clearly seen, these things have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God has revealed himself in his creation. 
couple things that we see in this first passage is that God is knowable. And we know him by looking at what he has made. I remember being at the Grand Canyon a number of years ago with waiting to watch the sunset. And there were some guys standing over to the side. And I didn't necessarily get the impression that they were God worshipers. But I remember that this guy, one of the guys goes, man, hard to look at this and not think there's a God. Right? Truly. Truly. As we waited for the sun, just the sun itself is an amazing creation. To come down and then set shadows and lights on different edges of that canyon right remember when I was growing up my dad had a fraternity brother who had uh, become an astronaut in the early space years and he had then become a senator and we had we were in Washington DC so we went to dinner with him and I remember of course you know as a kid you're wanting to hear all about space I could care less about the Senate so uh, and he was sharing about uh, going into space, and he shared really having this encounter with God. As he looked down at Earth, as he spun in the galaxies, this sense of God. God's creation puts him on display. But here's the problem with a God who is so infinite. A God who creates the stars. A God who creates, we could just sit and meditate upon the eyeball. The intricacies of an eye. And what that eye does. It's amazing. A God that powerful. A God that creative. A God that infinite. A God that divine. We are enamored, but I'm not sure we really want a God like that. Because the problem with that kind of God is you can't control him. Right. We can't control him. Reminds me of that conversation that uh, Lucy and Susan had in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, remember, they, these are these children from England and they end up in this land called Narnia. It's not a true story, but maybe it is. And <laughs> written by C.S. Lewis. And so if you know the story, C.S. Lewis has placed in his, these stories Aslan, who is a lion. And he's the Christ figure, okay? And so these children have not yet met Aslan, but they've met Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and because, of course, beavers in Narnia talk, maybe in the new heaven and new earth they will too. I'm kind of banking on it. Um, <laughs> but they run into these uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're having a conversation. They're being introduced to this concept of Aslan, and they uh, aren't sure who he is. And so Susan is asking, who is this Aslan? And Mr. Beaver says, you don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. It is he, not you, who will save Mr. Tumnus. Their friend Mr. Tumnus had 
been taken in and they wanted to save him, rescue him. And it was Aslan, the Christ figure, who would be the rescuer. Not you, Aslan. And then he goes on, he says, when Aslan comes, he'll put all things right, as it says in the old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. Because remember, at this time in Narnia, it was winter. It was always winter, but never Christmas. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You will understand, he says, when you see him. Lucy asks, is he a man? Mr. Beaver says, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan says, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall, rather, I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else they are just silly. So Lucy says, then he isn't safe. Mr. Beaver says, safe, no. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Such a beautiful picture of our God. He's not safe. He is not a God that we can control. He is a God who is infinite. He is a God who is great, but he is good. But what do we do with this God that we can't control? This God who isn't safe if we really come near him. We suppress the truth about him. That's what Paul says. We suppress the truth. We make safe gods. Gods who don't expect anything from us. That's where the New Age movement was so wonderful, right? Because it presented a God in which there was no accountability. It was a God that we made in our own image. A God that we can see. We like gods who are good luck charms. We like gods who are karma dispensers. Right? Just yesterday, sitting on my porch, reading my Bible, I was so struck by my prayers because I recognized I wasn't praying to the God of the universe. I was praying to my karma dispenser. You see, we know when we are thinking and seeing God as a karma dispenser. You know what karma is. Karma is if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. See, we can control that, right? And we know that that's the God we've been looking to when we find ourselves, like I have done many times in my life, saying things to God, such as, but God, I've been doing it all right. God, I'm doing everything I can. You owe me. 
we don't usually say you owe me, we say this, why don't I have? Why is this not changing? Why is this not going the way I want it to go, the way I need it to go? God, I have tried hard, I am doing good, why do I not have? Why is this not changing? Because you see, what I've done is I have taken all my good and said you owe, right? We like a God who is a karma dispenser. We like a God who's a magic eight ball, right? If I can just control that. I don't wanna sit and wait on God. I wanna shake that Bible and I wanna flip the, and sometimes this is not a bad thing, but I wanna shake it like a magic eight ball. I wanna open it. I wanna put my finger and then it says ride the donkey into wherever. And I wanna know. I want to control it. I want a guarantee. We suppress the truth of who God is. That word suppress, I found this interesting as I was studying this. Uh, one of the commentators I was reading said that that word there uh, where it says that they, who suppress the truth, the word is a word that was used in boating. It means to hold back. It was used for steering a boat against a current. And I thought this was so good. He said, the current wants to take the boat one way. But the helmsman, the one driving the boat, holds, or the word that's th this word, or suppresses the rudder to go the other way. We don't want to go where the current takes us. We want to go this way. And then the commentator said this. The wrath of God is revealed against those determined to go their own way, which is all of us, which is all of us. We wanna make ourselves functionally our own God. We wanna go our own way. We do not want to go in the stream of the spirit, the stream of our God and where he wants to take us. We wanna take that rudder and we wanna suppress it that we can go our way, go the way we wanna go, right? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. That word glory, the idea of glorifying God is giving him his worth. Glory means weightiness, worth, value. They didn't glorify, they didn't give God his worth, and I love this, this is a part of our worship, and they didn't give him thanks. They stopped thanking him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This is what sin does. We're going to talk about that over the next couple of weeks. But sin creates all kinds of chaos in it. It darkens our hearts, right? It darkens our understanding. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools and they exchanged, they traded that glory, that value, that worth, that weightiness of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human. In the West, we just make them look like ourselves. And birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. We're going to talk about that next week, so put that on hold. I know you're excited. 
verse 25, they not only exchanged the glory of God, they exchanged the truth about God, right? They, changed the, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. I love when Paul just kind of busts out into his own worship, right? He's basically saying, their worship, your worship, our worship has gone all kinds of sideways, and, and, and this is what's happened. We've exchanged the glory of God, his worth, his value. We've reduced it. We've exchanged the truth about God, and we've made up our own little gods. Oh, and by the way, he is forever to be praised. He is forever to be praised. We want to worship a God that we've created. A God who looks like us. A God who thinks like us. A God who shares our worldview. A God who shares our political views. We want that God, right? We want a God who is safe. We want a lion who is tame. So we let inanimate objects and man-made gods determine our destiny. That's what Russell Moore says. He says this, I don't know what you're being offered right now, but you'll either surrender it or you'll collapse right along with it. Whatever you're concerned about will lead you to what you worship. I will say whatever you're concerned about will reveal to you what you are functionally placing on the throne of your life. And on what you worship, he says, hinges your destiny. On what you worship hinges your destiny. And here's the thing. What's hard is that I think so many of the things on which we put our destiny so many of the things of which we worship are really good things. It's not a hard thing to go, oh, I've been worshiping Satan, I should stop doing that, right? Um, but it's the good things. It's all these good things. It's a spouse. It's a friend. It's a group of friends. It's your career. That's a good thing, right? It's your savings. You should have savings. That's a good thing. It's your role in parenting. That's a good thing. It's your kids. They're good things. It's travel. It's adventure. Those are good things. It's a good meal. It's fun, right? It's ministry. That's often on my throne. Often. I let it determine my des destiny, my value, my worth. I let it tell me if I matter. You see, that's what we're doing when we put these things on the throne of our life and we move God over to the side and we say, yeah, I'll get in touch with you when I really need you. But right now, these things tell me if I matter. These things tell me if I have worth. These things grant me all of the happiness that I need. These things are the hope for my future. These things are at the very core of if I'm going to be satisfied, if I'm going to have peace. These things, these things are what consume me. 
because I got to have them and they have to come through for me because I can control them. At least I think I can, right? But here's the problem with that. These things, whether it's a career or a person, whether it's your kids or your savings account, they cannot stand up to your worship. They cannot come through. And if they're people, our worship will crush them. If they're people, our worship will not set them free. If they're people, we will not release them to their own destiny, right? To their own worship. And we will crush them. Because you know this, I know it, but I still go back. They're gonna let me down, right? They're gonna let me down. They were not made to be worshiped. You were not made to be worshiped. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Here's the invitation of the Bible. Worship God. Worship God. Worship the God who is one and yet three. Worship the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Enjoy all that is good in your, your life. Hear me with this. This is what religious people do. Religious people say, well, then I just don't even, shouldn't even have a spouse. I shouldn't even have a vacation. I shouldn't even have a savings account. I shouldn't even have fun. I shouldn't have kids. I shouldn't parent. I shouldn't, whatever the thing is, right? I should just get rid of it. That is not the invitation of the scripture. You know what the invitation of the scripture is? Love them more. Have more fun. Live in what God has created and given you, and then guess what? Thank him. Thank him. Don't stop thanking him. It's not that you stop enjoying. It's not that you stop living and doing life with all these things that are, have the potential of being many gods. It's just keep them off the throne. Put them where they belong, right next to you, below the throne. Right? Put them next to you. But let God... Let God be the one who upholds your value and worth. Let God be the one who determines your destiny. Let God be the one who goes before you and comes behind you and comes to live in you through his spirit. Let God be your ultimate and all the rest be with you to be enjoyed, right? Surrender your heart, your mind, your adoration, your affections, your praise to God. Let these three things define your worship. The truth, the spirit, and surrender. The truth, the spirit, and surrender. You see, Jesus was chatting with a woman that he met by a well. She was a Samaritan woman, she was not like him, she was not Jewish, and they got into a conversation. And as they were talking, it became clear that she did have um, an object of her worship. 
She had an object of her worship where she was seeking to find her value, her worth. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me that I matter. And the object of her worship, although she would not put it this way, she would have never even put it in the category of worship, was relationships with men, right? And Jesus, as only Jesus can do, in their conversation kind of brings this to light. And it's really interesting because it's Jesus brings this worship problem to life without ever using the word worship, she suddenly brings up worship. But what she wants to talk about, because she thinks she's going to kind of divert things here, is she wants to talk about where you worship, because there was kind of a little bit of a debate between the Samaritans and Jesus, where you worship, right? Jesus has none of it. I love this about him. Uh, (laughs) He's not going to talk, he's not going to get into that debate. He's going to shift it further to not necessarily where you worship but who you worship and how you worship and so he says this he says a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in the spirit and in the truth for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. Let the truth, number one, let the truth define your worship. What is that truth? That truth is the truth of the gospel that we talked about last week, which we're going to talk about basically every week because Romans is the gospel, right? That truth is the truth given to us in Scripture about who God is, about what he does. And if you want to know God, a little secret. Hard to know God apart from the Bible. Hard to know God by just looking at the stars. The stars will tell me that he is great and he is big and he is infinite, but they will not tell me his name. They will not tell me that he's the kind of God who comes in the flesh and sits and has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. They will not tell me that he's the kind of God who parts a Red Sea to protect and rescue and release his people. John chapter one tells us this, that if you wanna know God, look at Jesus. It says this, that no one has seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Colossians says the same thing, Paul wrote, he says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He says, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for him. Do you think of Jesus as the one who hung the stars? That's what the scripture says. And that is what's true of him. So we know that when we read Genesis chapter one, that it's Jesus who's creating and a part of the creative act. We would not know that by just looking at the Grand Canyon. We know it through the scripture, through the word. Jesus says this of himself in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you want to know how to get to God? Do you know how, want to ha- know how to come to God? Jesus tells you. 
come through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. So here, let the truth define your worship. Study Jesus. And how do you study Jesus? You study the Bible. Because Jesus says that he was revealed in the Old Testament, the prophets, and through Moses. So Jesus says, if you want to know me, look to the Old Testament and the New Testament. And every once in a while, when you're struggling with your adoration, the words in the scripture for worship, the terms used are two different terms. One is, a, is the idea of bowing down, at adoring, giving praise. And the other term is the idea of an action, serving God, right? And when you feel stuck sometimes in that adoration, then just crack your Bible open in the middle uh, and use the Psalms as your guide. Those Psalms were Jesus' prayer book. They can be ours too, that's awesome. So, one, let the truth define your worship. Secondly, let the Spirit define your worship. Jesus says that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. That's what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit in the book of John. He says, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. In John 16, Jesus tells us that the Spirit reveals only what Jesus reveals to him. This is fascinating. The Spirit will reveal only what, the, what Jesus has revealed to him, and then Jesus, we know, if you studied the Gospel of John, Jesus only says what the Father tells him to say and only does what the Father tells him to do. And so what you've got here in John 16 is this Trinitarian, beautiful dance of the Trinity, right? The Spirit is going to reveal what I reveal to him, and I'm revealing to him what the Father has revealed to me. And then the Spirit's going to bring about in you adoration of the Father. And the Father is going to point you to the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to point you to Jesus, and we are going to worship. Paul will say in Romans 8 that the Spirit persuades us, reveals the truth that we are children of God. That's what the Spirit does. First Thessalonians, Paul will tell us that the Spirit reveals the truth of the gospel. So I would say, when you worship, and all of life is worship, so every moment, invite the Spirit to guide you. Invite the Holy Spirit into your worship. Invite him to speak to you. Invite him to reveal to you what Jesus has revealed to him, that the Father has revealed to Jesus. Do you believe that the Spirit wants to meet you? Wants to speak to you? Wants to reveal the truth? Through this living word of God and our listening ears? Invite him, invite him into your worship. So let the truth define your worship, let the spirit define your worship, and let surrender define your worship. This is where Paul is gonna take us. Here in Romans one, he describes, and he's gonna continue to describe, counterfeit worship. He's gonna describe for us where worship has gone sideways 
where worship has gone wrong. And then he's going to go Romans 1 to Romans 11. He's laying out the gospel. He's laying out the mercies of God. And then Romans 12, he's going to tell us what real worship looks like. He says this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what I've just laid out for you, yeah, you're a mess, I'm a mess, but God is merciful, God is gracious, God is for us, and in view of that goodness, in view of that mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What worship looks like is an offering of all of yourself. There is no compartmentalization in Christianity. There is no, well, I have my church thing, and I have my job thing, and I have my running group, and I have my, I don't know, whatever you do, right thing. It is over all those things. God is over all those things. He's with you in all of those things. So offer your bodies, offer your minds, offer your hearts, offer your actions, offer what you do, offer your words as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. He's given us little advice here if you're going to offer your body a living sacrifice you're probably not going to be able to conform to the pattern of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind because how you think is how you live and how do we renew our mind oh my gosh I feel like I'm just getting redundant here we open this book we study the scriptures We invite the Spirit to reveal the truth to us. He says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Worship is adoration. Worship is action. I love that Paul says in another book, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I love that he doesn't say whether you go to church, whether you sing worship hymns, whether you like Bethel or whether you like Elevation, whether you like, he he doesn't say that. He says things that we do every day. He says really earthy, common things. When you eat, do it to the glory of God. When you drink, do it to the glory of God. Oh, by the way, whatever you do. When you go to work, when you parent your kids, when you write an email, when you run, when you just lay on the couch and watch This Is Us. Do it to the glory of God. All that we do unto his glory, unto his worth, unto his value. Oh, Lord, we pray this would be true of us. Would you make us, would you make us people who worship the one true God, you? Not a counterfeit God. Not a God that's safe. Not a God we can control. But a God we can adore. 
a God who is worthy of all of our affections, all of our resources, all of our time, all that we have, all of our relationship, would we offer them up to you? And we would say, thank you, God. Would we say, thank you, God. Thank you for what we drink and what we eat. Thank you for TV. Thank you for fun. Thank you for relationships. Thank you for all that you give us, God. We praise you, we worship you, and we adore you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.